0: I'm Duncan McLeod, and this is Tech Central's business technology show, TCS Plus, brought to you today by data loss prevention and insider risk specialists, NextDLP. I'm joined by three guests today. First up are two familiar faces to the show, uh, and they are Chris Denvig white who's chief security officer at NextDLP, and Fallon Stain, who is the company's regional sales manager for South Africa. Now, Fallon and Chris are joined today by one of NextDLP's clients, Nadia Viren Patel, and she is Information Security Officer at a company called LRMG, and they're specialists in talent technology and talent advisory. And I'm told that Nadia has a podcast of her own called Journeys to Inspire, but uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that a bit later in the show. Welcome to you all. Thanks for uh, making the time, Nadia I think let me let me uh, throw the first question your way, uh, if you don't mind. Maybe tell us a little bit about LRMG, what the company does, uh, why it was that you ended up engaging and becoming a client of uh, Next DLPS.
1: Thanks so much, Duncan, and appreciate you guys for inviting me onto Tech Central and being Pleasure. a special feature for Next DLP. Um, LRMG, well we 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 fun we e-learning we talent management uh you know we try to get people and and their people management to a higher level um it's been great working for them themselves it's going on 3 years now as the information security officer uh it's been an excellent ride so far uh, a tough journey i've uh, been this first information security officer that they've had um so it's been an interesting one the business obviously went fully remote uh after 2020 Uh, We've remained that way. We are probably 80% remote now and 20% in office because we still provide some training in-house. And it's been a challenge from a data perspective. And when I recognized that challenge, when I joined in 2021, it was something I had to put down as a high risk for me. And when I went out into market and I looked at the type of uh, products and services that were and solutions that were out there, Next DLP came up and popped up, and uh, yeah, let's just say the rest is history.
0: Great. Have you always been in the information security business?
1: Is that your background? Uh, background in IT, uh, almost well over twenty years now. Um, getting old, <laughs> uh, not to give my age away though. Um, but yeah, uh, IT has been something I fell into. I was I studied marketing and just ended up staying in IT all my life, uh, and then. Pretty late in my career, in my 30s, early 30s, I fell into uh, information security. Uh, At the company I was working for at the time, they were looking for someone. uh, It was a UK-based company looking for someone to head up information security in South Africa. And I was pretty much put up for that. So it's been a journey, um, a fun one, a scary one, uh, but a hell of an entertaining one.
0: (laughs) So, so in companies that have gone remote, and I'm, I know a few, quite a lot of companies actually that, that decided after two thousand and twenty, after the COVID crisis, that actually we don't really need offices anymore, and we're quite quite capable of working remotely. But um, that does introduce some potential security challenges. Um, what what are some of the risks that you encountered in your investigations at LRMG? What were some mm-hmm. of the some of the uh, pitfalls that you encountered around data management, data security in a remote work situation?
1: Yeah. So I think what what you don't know won't hurt you, right? So there was a lot of, I think, um, bias when it came to what happens to our data or almost naivety, uh, shall I say. So, you know, We always sit and we say, okay, but we've got this locked down. We've got this locked down until you test it. And when we did that and I said, okay, let's test the theory and see how much of our data is actually moving. Where is it moving to? Um, And we deal with a lot of private data, uh, PII, right? So I needed to lock that down and make sure that we were protecting it. And I had to take a stance of zero trust in that situation and say, hey, let's just test it. And when we did Um, I switched on a couple of basic things that we already had in Microsoft, for example, and a lot of data was flowing out of the company and, you know, unknowingly by our users. But again, it comes back to that insider risk and the insider uh, threat management. And we didn't realize how much they were sending out and they didn't realize the risks and the consequences behind that. So it came down to making sure I knew what was happening with our data um, locking it down, but also mm-hmm. making a conscientious effort to have that change management conversations with the people who are sharing the data, which is pretty much everybody right? So it became this whole cyber awareness uh, training and then it became something bigger than that, which was data privacy data management
0: okay, okay, so how did your engagement with next DLP happen? How did you meet the guys from next DLP and how did you decide that this was the right solution for you?
1: So it was interesting. I met a couple of guys who aren't uh, one of the guys that aren't there anymore uh, introduced me to the product. Um, I met them outside of uh, outside of you know this type of arena and um, and then I met uh, Anna and Garcia and uh, and then Chris and it's been a hell of a ride with the two of them uh, because we had a lot of issues being in the African market um, that they didn't experience in the European market. and then of course Fallon I knew, Prior to her joining Next DLP, uh, we went for clay shooting, uh, I believe, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, and then we and then she joined Next DLP, and it's just become a, a, a friendship, I think, uh, even from Chris's side. Okay. But that's the special attention that I feel that I get, um, which is which is a good one, which I always lean to Is that you need people that you can rely on when you have vendors, especially because if something were to happen, and I had issues that, uh, you know, caused the rollback, um, mm-hmm. which you'd never want on your first project, nonetheless. Um, but it was, it was interesting, because I got so much of support and so much of almost, you know, that caressing and that tenderness, that they held me and they supported me and I felt held and supported. And that's what really helped uh, secure the relationship between XDLP and myself. And Great.
0: Well, we're going to come back a little bit later in the discussion and, and talk about exactly what you've done in your organisation to secure your data, your sensitive uh, uh, information. But uh, Chris, for for anyone who might have missed uh, previous episodes of, of TCS Plus, um, where you've been a guest, perhaps just to recap a bit about your background. If I recall correctly, Chris, you you once worked in the police uh, as an investigator of some kind. Um, tell us a bit about your background and how you came to your role as chief security officer at next
2: yes it's a very winding path um the police sort of the police yes i kind of took a job in the police in my early 20s and then quickly moved over to a more intelligence based role looking at counter extremism counter terrorism so seconded out of the police um shall we say um so worked in that for a number of years um Ended up in a quite surprising sidestep into IT. I've always been a massive geek, but uh, I suddenly had a quite sensitive database infrastructure dropped upon me, and I was instructed, you can run this now. And my response was, yes, of course, but you will put me through the training courses to certify before I touch any of this stuff. And that's where my kind of start in information security and IT began. I kind of rebuilt this infrastructure and thought, let's do this in the correct way. Um, That was kind of cybersecurity back then, is actually configure things in a defensible way. It wasn't necessarily called cybersecurity then. And then throughout my career working in kind of UK government policing intelligence, I kind of iterated on that, building infrastructures, securing them, most latterly an open source unit that was looking to track the activities of groups like ISIS back when that was a big thing. Um, Then moved out into the private sector bounced around a couple of places, worked at Transport for London, the London Transport Authority, in consulting for a bit. Most recently in Deutsche Bank, I ran the global privileged access operations teams, awful, awful mouth, mouthful, and then um, came to NextDLP, uh, a jump into the vendor dark side to uh, manage their internal information security program as well. So um, although I'm on a podcast talking about Next DLP, I actually do the internal security for Next DLP rather than being one of those um, CISO marketing figurehead type people. You know, I'll speak to information security, but just to give you some reassurance, my day job is actually doing the job like Nadia does as well. And Nadia can attest to that too, right?
1: Absolutely.
0: So that's me. Hello. Great, great to well, be great. here. Chris, so so, um, tell us a bit about the challenges you then face in your role as Chief Security Officer for Next and um, whether those are similar to some of the challenges that Nadia has uh, faced at uh, LRMG. I know Nadia mentioned that there were some specific issues to her uh, being in the African Mm -hmm. context that perhaps Next hasn't even dealt with before. Uh, But maybe maybe talk a bit about about some of those challenges that you've faced and and how they compare to some of the challenges Nadia's faced in her organization.
2: Absolutely. I think first thing I want to say is Working as a CISO for a security vendor, I think it's an awfully high bar because we are a company that sells and trades on the fact that we prevent data from going where it should be. We identify insider risks, risk, blah, blah, blah. We help a load of people. And if we kind of can't do that for ourselves, it doesn't really bode too well. So from a baseline, the pressure's on for me to make sure that we don't do anything Silly, and we have a defensible architecture, both in the product that we build, but also in our business practices as well. Mm. So, my day to day, I see, is going to be in a lot of ways quite similar to that of any information security so Really, is ensuring there's a program, ensuring there's management buy-in, ensuring there's communication and understanding. And those are two things I got from speaking with Navier and other CISOs as well that visibility leads to communication, leads to understanding in a bi-directional way. And that's how I like to run information security at Next is understanding the business process and then being the security team that likes to say yes, but safely, as opposed to no, I don't want to talk to you. I always try and present an approachable front to uh, the wider company.
0: So Nadia, I just want to come back to what you mentioned then about the uh, about some of the unique challenges that you've faced as a as a South African or African entity. Maybe just touch on those uh, briefly. What were some of the specific challenges to LRMG that that uh, you had to deal with?
1: Yeah, so I think besides the 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 exchange rate, <laughs> the other things that I definitely can talk about is being in in a not first world country. Uh, we don't have machines that get circulated every two to three years right we're sitting with machines five seven ten years old and everybody keeps saying hey just put a lightweight agent it won't do much you know and that's the thing that little lightweight agent if your machine is seven years old can be you know downgrading on the entire machine Um, and and that Mm -hmm. was one of the issues that we had is you know having something put onto your machine may be great when it's a year or two old but then when you want to roll it out to the rest of the business and then all of a sudden you know you have an issue and that's exactly what happened to us and i think um even from next point of view they hadn't realized that um so it was an interesting one because we had to like i said we, we had to roll back and there, was, there were other issues where we had upgraded after the poc and we upgraded onto a different version all oh, Great lessons learned uh, going forward. Um, But I think, you know, once we ironed those things out, I think Next became a whole lot better in, in ironing out problems, not just for the other clients, but clients specifically in Africa, because we took into consideration that a lightweight agent might not necessarily be just that.
0: Sure, sure. Now, Fallon, um, you engage with a lot of uh, CISOs on the ground here in the South African market. Um, Based on what you've heard in this conversation so far, how does this square with what you're hearing in the local market? What are clients and potential clients coming to talk to you about? What are they telling you right now?
3: So, uh, Duncan, it's it's everything. It goes back to what Nadia is saying about the challenges faced uh, in the African context, especially the ROE. I find that companies are really battling with the rate of exchange at the moment. But also they understand the importance of data privacy. They also understand that there is an insider risk um, element to the business. So there is a level of maturity in the African markets. And that's the conversations we're having, right? And the, the, the beauty and one of the reasons why I actually joined Next was the flexibility and the agility that the business is prepared to listen and then figure out ways how we can help our customers in the African market. We're not this massive vendor where we are set in stone and going, no, this is how we do it. And this, and look, either you buy it or you don't. That's not the attitude that we have. So... In, in in the African context, is that there is that level of maturity? People are having the right discussions, um, and we at Nextop obviously trying to figure out ways that will address the African market that and their needs, not try and force what we believe if it's happening overseas, it's going to you know work in Africa, and that's what I'm finding that a lot of our customers are very appreciative of, is that we are listening and we are prepared to walk with them on their journey. It's not, it's, look, data and insider risk is not a quick fix, right? Um, You're asking to change behavior. You're asking mm-hmm. for guys to look at huge amounts of data. You're asking teams, maybe one, two people, to look at streams and mm-hmm. streams and streams of information to try and make sense of it. So there's a lot that we take into to consideration um, with the client base and obviously with our technology mm-hmm. as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Chris, I think it'd be quite helpful at this point, if you don't mind, maybe just um, chatting a little bit about uh, what Next DLP helps its customers with specifically and what these pro- implementation projects um, tend to look like. Uh, how do you engage with a client? Um, how, how do you get started on these projects? And what's actually involved in ensuring that companies are adequately protecting their data and ensuring that data isn't walking out the front door?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to jump in and uh, kind of add something to that. I'll probably… Take it. I'll probably answer your question backwards, to be honest. Uh, rather than talking about implementation first, I'm going to talk about end result first, because it speaks to something right. that Fallon was saying and something that Nadia has spoken about, and that's and something I understand acutely, is small security teams. And it is unbelievable. You know, the moment you get into information security or cyber security, you realize very quickly how much logging and monitoring information even one computer generates. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable, large amounts of data. And, you know, that's great. Yeah. I used to work, as I mentioned, for a large well, a large bank, a large corporate bank, and we had hundreds of staff. We had managed outsource people, but now I work for a scale-up cybersecurity company, and I just don't have that. You know, I have a relatively small team. Uh, <laughs> so I think the first thing that I really love around an information security program based on, we use our own product, is the ability, yes, to have visibility and understanding of all these different streams of data. Yes, there's a whole bunch of data, but for that to be distilled into something meaningful, for me to be able to answer the question, what does normal look like in my company? And am I happy with what that normal looks like? Am I even aware that that is normal? You know, shadow business processes, we call them in information security the business has been operating in this way for 20 years or whatever, they just call them business processes. The fact that no one's told us about them and we haven't necessarily engaged enough to understand the business is doing this. You know, it's, the product has helped me understand those things and be able to codify and secure them. So even without your classic data loss prevention, identifying malicious insider stuff, from general visibility and control and communication perspective, that certainly has helped me tremendously. Mm -hmm. Flipping over to the kind of deployment side of things, again, standard insider risk data loss protection projects, and I've been part of a few of them through various companies in the past. Used to be, you know, buy some big servers or some big cloud appliance to read every piece of data that I have in my entire company, wherever it happens to be stored. This takes somewhere, depending on the company and the project I've worked on, between, you know, three months and four years, actually, uh, one is a horrible project, um, and the result that you get back is a usually a CSV file or a CSV file converted into a shiny PDF that goes, you have 822,464 and 96 right. documents that may be sensitive, but we don't know if they've gone anywhere, but they might be sensitive, and then you think, oh, great, this is really super useful. Actually, no, it's not because then I have to commission an entire other project to read those and then determine what I want to do about them. And all the while you're doing this, data could be walking out through the door. And so that's kind of slow. And there's a definite argument for that kind of discovery exercise when you're dealing with things like records management and retention and things like that. Absolutely, that's something, you know, you kind of have to do for that purpose. But if your aim is identifying insider risks and stopping data leaking and having to tell your customers you've lost their data then that isn't necessarily the best way to go about it for quick wins. And what I found on the flip side is that if you can determine what normal looks like and you can have a process of identifying data at the point of risk, when it's moving, when it's crossing a trust boundary, when it's doing something else to determine, okay, is this sensitive? If it is sensitive, what kind of sensitive is it? And as a result of that determination, what do I want to do about it? Do I want to stop something from happening? Do I want to nudge someone into some training? Do I want to set an alarm off somewhere? Do I want to lock someone out of their computer? Having the ability to do all that very, very quickly has been amazing for me. And again, I'm sure now Nadia can speak to that. But, you know, and being able to do something like that as simple as pushing out an installer file to endpoints. And now I know pushing out an installer to endpoints isn't as 100% seamless and simple as everybody makes it out to be, but it can be quite simple as long as you know whether or not you're using five, six, 10-year-old laptops or not, or you know you have a means to do, do that. But it's a whole lot easier than spending between four months and three years classifying oh. data to, in my mind, not get any further than you were when you started. So that's yeah, that's kind of that's kind of my insight. And as a big data geek, I just love being able to understand and see what these computers are doing and how they work. It's an education tool for me, going, Oh, I didn't realise Windows did all this, this stuff as well. And I'm a former forensic investigator, I should kind of know know this stuff, but I've seen stuff in our platform that's like, ah, that makes a lot more sense now. I've seen this put in a way that's very easy to
0: digest.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah. The idea is, um it's deploying a, a project like this, uh, it, it sounds to me, based on what Chris is saying, that the 80% of a, a project like this is actually just figuring out what data you have, where it is, and what of that data is, is critically sensitive and needs to be protected. Um, maybe take us through the project you've implemented and how you went about it and how Next DLP helped you in that uh, process and, and what was involved. Am I right in thinking a lot of this was actually just figuring out what information you have?
1: So actually not, luckily, you know, because, and, and right. that, that, yeah, it's an it's interesting. Chris actually put it really well. I thought it would have been. Um, <clears throat> my experience, discover your data, classify your data, make sure your data is protected and not leaked, right? That is the process. This wasn't it. Mm-hmm. This was as seamless and as interesting as possible. We literally put something in. I tied it in with our, our Microsoft Azure Information Protection, and we had our classification labels. And if it picked up something, for example, with a South African ID, it would automatically pick it up. So there was no such thing as discovery. There was no such thing as classification. I skipped all those steps. And that's what made it wow. so brilliant, right? And, I, and when we started using it, and I was always keen on, on, on machine learning, right? I mean, I'm a firm believer in machine learning and looking for anomalies. And this is what Next did for me. And this is why I'm such a believer in my tool and I I have it running for so many years is I put it in and it didn't just look for my data. It looked at my people. It looked at my endpoints. It looked at their behaviors, right? So I would put an agent in and let's say, Duncan, you logged in five o'clock or eight o'clock every day, logged out five o'clock every day. And then all of a sudden... You, and you'd only certain, go to certain file shares, certain OneDrives or Teams folders, and use the uh, the data from there. And then all of a sudden, Duncan is logging now in in Russia, for example, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> or 3 o'clock in the morning, and just not feasible, right? And all of a sudden, exfiltrating tons and tons and large amounts of data picks up his anomaly, alerts me immediately, and I'm able to pick it up. And that's what I found brilliant, is that it looked at patterning, it looked at machine learning, it looked at my users, and it didn't just look at my data. So I found mm-hmm. that I was starting to be able to see a lot more with regards to my user behavior, and I was able to use that. And I think I used it, I'm, I'm very much like Chris said, you know, there's a lot of us in the security industry that love to do the whole, don't do that. That's not, don't, don't do that. And I'm very much, okay. You did it, how can we not do it better? Or how can we do it better later? And you're not gonna do it. And and that's how I use Nexta as well, because some of the pop-ups come up and I've got, if you know me on a personal level, I have a terrible dry sense of humor, um, but I would use those pop-ups as an information tool, but I didn't want to scare you. I didn't want to freak you out. I didn't want to say, I'm literally watching you, right? Because I didn't want everybody mm-hmm. to think I was big brother either, or big sister in this case. And it was very much a, a tool that I said, hey, you know, do you know that using this channel or webmail is not really a secure way of transferring your data? Um, let's do it another way. Contact me, you know." and then I put a smiley face or something like that. Or I'd say, oh, if someone did something that they knew they weren't supposed to do, like access a torrent, I'm like, hey, I know what you did last night. You know, <laughs> um, Let's not do it again. <laughs> so it became interesting and I used my humor to bring a lot of it in. But I also I I held a hand through that entire process. So people you would come back and they would they would approach me and say, Hey Nads I, I got this. Um I got an alert to say I shouldn't be doing this. Can you tell me why and tell me how to do it better? And up until yesterday I had someone do that to me. So it's been a really good experience and I honestly believe that the tool has helped me more than disabled me. So it's an empowered and empowered myself as well as my users in that way. Mm -hmm. So it's been an excellent one. And I think um, if I can add as a last on this note is it's, it's quite a funny story, but I remember I had someone try to access a a site that they weren't supposed to. And I had, I could, I could actually ask you to acknowledge that, you know, um, that you weren't supposed to do that. So you could, click on the acknowledgement and then put a, put a little um, note in. And uh, I had the user come and say, um, I was, I was trying to access this for my assignment and then send. Mm -hmm. And then the next one, and they did this nine times, right? And the next one was, damn it, why won't this work? And then, you know, send. And then by the ninth one, it was kind of like, fine, I won't do it. And then, but in the meantime, all I kept getting was, is they didn't even realize I was, I was taking screenshots each time of the screen when they tried to do it. And all I did was I sent a message and I said, hey, I, I know this was tough. And I'm, unless you're studying for medicine, I doubt Grey's Anat- Anatomy episode four, season five, was <laughs> part of your degree. <laughs> <laughs> but,
3: <laughs>
1: but it was interesting. It was interesting. It yeah. was fun. And um, it makes my job entertaining, Duncan. Um I have. So,
0: very often it's just about, so very often, Nadia, in, in, in your instance, and I'm sure it's the case with other organizations, it's just a case of employees not knowing better and doing things that they shouldn't be doing. But in some cases, there will be employees who are malicious and are out there to steal your information. I, I'm thinking particularly of employees who have resigned and are going to a competitor and they want to download confidential information onto a USB stick or some other media and then take it to that uh, competitor or do something else with that information. The system, it allows you to do that as well, does it? And, and, uh, and detect that sort of thing. Have you, have you actually picked up any sort of any of this sort of quite serious uh, activity on your network since you've deployed next DLP solution?
1: Yes. So, and, and I love how you said that because I, I'm a big believer of watching out for leavers, right? Because that, and, and, and you're right. There's a lot of innocence behind a lot of things that i done, which is non-malicious activity, but there is a, a degree mm. of major maliciousness. And I've been a part of it for many, many years. And I've seen, uh, I've seen people start off entire new businesses of IP that was built in the company that we were in, right? And nobody saw it as a risk. And so I take it quite seriously. So luckily, Next allows you to even block USB, So I don't even allow people to transfer data from their phones. Uh, onto their machines, onto their their actual laptops, uh, work laptops. But I've taken it a bit further. Is When when I knew someone was leaving, and this happened not too long ago, I'd call it about three or four months ago, is we had one of our high-ranking execs leave our organization. And I I said, you know, and and he kind of did make it public that he was moving to a competitor. So all I did was I said, okay, I'm going to look out for, you know, any malicious kind of activity. And I said, I'm just gonna scan the alerts every day, a couple of times a day, and just make sure that he's not taking anything. And one morning I logged in, and lo and behold, 11, 12, one o'clock in the morning, he is kind of transferring data to his his Gmail account. Okay, and I'm like, okay, let me look into it. And I and I looked into it, and I could see the file names, and I could see what it was. I, I don't work in the department, so I don't know how sensitive the data is, but I could tell from you know the naming convention that it looked pretty sensitive. But not gonna take matters into my own hands because it's not my call. So I kind of, you know, sent it to the big boys and I was like, Hey, look, I did I did recognize this. What do you think? And and they were like, Wow, this shouldn't be happening. We locked his we locked his computer down, we kind of said, Okay, you know what, you actually become became a major threat to our business and risk. So, you know. Let's shake hands amicably I and let you leave you know sort of thing but what was nice is we we could prevent him from using that same information because now we had we had proof mm-hmm. so he couldn't take that to a competitor and then i spoke to the guys at next and vic um, who's now the new my new account manager at next dlp was brilliant because he's like you know you can set an alert for these guys and i'm like i can he's like yeah let's call it a leavers policy and i was like this is brilliant So now every month, you know, it's slightly manual, but it's way better than what I was doing, which was looking for those alerts, is now I can actually take a person, put them into a policy and mark them and flag them as being a potential flight risk, right, and being a potential insider threat. Mark them, and my policy now notifies me automatically that, hey, this person's been siphoning data. So... I couldn't be more happier that, and like Chris picked up, you know, when you're working for a small organization, it's really tough when you're the only person that is the security person and everything kind of falls on you. is It's hard to be on top of everything every second of the day. I don't have a sock. I don't have all the other stuff, the fun stuff, and I don't have an entire team. So what Next has helped me to do is that it creates alerts and then it sends it straight to my help desk so that I'm not the only one that's seeing it, and then it becomes something. I can put the alert as saying, hey guys, this is critical, we need to look at this. So there's a a specific wording I could use to say, hey, they need to look at it, whether they know what it's about or not. Um, So it just, it enhances my team and, and makes me more proactive rather than reactive.
0: Fallon out of interest um how do employees tend to react to this sort of technology uh is there pushback do do employees feel they're being <laughs> spied on um or do you think that organ do you think that organi- uh, that that um people kind of understand that organizations need to protect their data and therefore understand the need to put in these in place these sort of um protocols and 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 systems to to protect information what's what's the general sort of feedback you hear from employees of organizations who've deployed DLP solutions?
3: So that's a good question, Duncan. So what we have found, it depends on how the companies are rolling out the system, right? Uh, And a lot of our customers, they've already got policies in place from a a HR perspective and the employees we find are educated, they understand about their own privacy as well as the data that they're managing. And then what happens is, is that the, the communications will be sent out saying, we have purchased a new technology, it is a DLP solution, the, and, and this is what you can expect to happen. Um, so in my experience, uh, since I've been here, it depends on how the clients uh, roll out the technology and how they communicate with their employees. Communication is key, right? If the employees... Um, Okay. On feeling like they're being spied on, or, or their, their own, even if it is a work laptop, they they would appreciate that open communication, and they're not being uh, intrusive. The technology is not intrusive, right? Um, and I think that's key. We we're not here mm-hmm. to catch mm-hmm. you out. That's not <laughs> that's not what we're here to do. Cyber hygiene. Education and protection of data. And also, um, I wanted to go back in terms of obviously the size of teams. I mean, um, before I started at Next, I used to run global recruitment for a cybersecurity company and alert fatigue was a real issue. Um, and, and that's also one of the, the key, um, differentiators with the technology is that it doesn't just send waves and waves of alerts, unnecessary alerts it can be streamlined and that helps the employees as well. I just wanted to throw that in there. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay.
2: Can I jump in with okay. something really quickly as well on that point? Because that's something yes. I've seen and noticed as well. Because obviously, as you've said, you know, you have a technology and like both Nadia and I have mentioned that, you know, captures a whole bunch of data of people's user activity and behaviors on computers. And the question's absolutely right. That can in one hand seem a little bit creepy. Mm. Um, so kind of the way I handle things within kind of our company as well is um, our platform is able to pseudo anonymize all of the data in the platform. So it will see all the activity and it will give you alerting, hey, there's some data that could potentially be leaving or some risky user behavior. But on first pass of me triaging that, I don't see any of the names or the computer names. They're all substituted for alternative names. So I don't know that it's Fallon doing Mm -hmm. something wrong or Vic doing something wrong. I know that these are the circumstances of this is what has happened, a series of offence. And then I have to take a conscious choice to determine, okay, so is this serious enough to investigate mm-hmm. that I would want to request de anonymization of this? And that's a process that can be put in place in our platform as well. And we've seen this you know, in countries, uh, mostly in Europe around GDPR, where employee privacy is a really big thing. We've built this to support that level of lack of intrusion where there is less of an appetite for just global access. But, you know, um, we are about protecting data and protecting companies. But at the same, we're about protecting employees and protecting the business, which is facilitating that bilateral communication between security and the wider business. And if one side thinks the other side is spying on them, and the other side thinks that the other side are constantly stealing data and really bad at their jobs, you know, that's not going to happen. So we like to think of ourselves, yes, a security tool, but also almost a bridge of communication across business to facilitate moving forwards yeah. in unison, if that doesn't sound too trite and tweeny.
0: Just just related to that, Chris, I'm, I'm sure uh, a lot of CIOs would love to lock down their environments as far as possible and make them as, as safe as possible. But I suppose you can actually go too far and, and, and start to have an impact oh. on employee productivity and and just make it frustrating for, for mm-hmm. those end users okay. who are trying to, just trying to get their jobs done. They've got notices popping up all the time or they're being told they can't do this, they can't do that because of security <laughs> risk. How, how do you balance that um, as yeah. a CISO? How do you how do you how do you decide? Well, we we need to monitor this this person or every employee for for potential risk or abuse here, um, but we also don't want to impact that employee's productivity and slow them down. How, how do you balance those two competing things?
2: Absolutely. Um firstly, uh, I'd like to jump on something you said. You said uh, CISOs that want to lock down their computers to make them as secure as possible. I don't think necessarily, firstly, I'll challenge you on that. One doesn't lead to another. You know, you think about the castle and moat mentality. If you lock something down entirely as a CISO, you know, basically a business users and users and IT users are like water, essentially. You know, you build a massive wall and you subject it to a massive load of water. You think, oh, that's super secure. You know, I had a house I used to own that thankfully I sold and I was painting waterproof paint on this wall for the months I was selling it, you know. But that water would always come through. And it's the same with these aggressive, not well-thought-out security controls that some CISOs put in place. You know, block people Mm. from doing anything. You know, you're then pushing people to shadow IT or pushing people to, you know, if you lock down your communications between employees too much, you're pushing people to using Signal and WhatsApp on their personal phones and just discussing business stuff Mm. entirely out of band. And it just doesn't work. So I think, answer to your question balancing those things is you know you take a risk-based approach you go okay so likely worst case scenario financial loss that might result of this you know depending on to what end of degrees of risk assessment you want to do and then you determine what controls and what level of controls are appropriate but in implementing those controls i favor guardrails over roadblocks Mm
0: -hmm. you know
2: i would much rather allow our business users to happily conduct their work every day and not necessarily know that there is is security tooling in place until they happen to nudge against one of those guardrails and those guardrails aren't roadblocks that stop people from doing their job they're things like take the example of data transfer my old job I used to have to transfer masses of data to kind of the financial auditors and regulators all the time and I try and do this and I worked in the CISO's office and I was like in charge of a certain aspect of protecting information security. But I'd try and do this, and our old DLP solution, it wasn't us as a company, it was another software vendor, um, basically (laughs) said, you are not allowed to send this to your auditor because this is sensitive data. And I'm like, well, I know it's sensitive data because I own this data and I need to send this. And there was in that, I was just stopped. And there was no, this is the right way you implement a guardrail control by going, yes, there are some things you want to stop happening because there are known bad things to happen. But if you're going to do that, follow that up with a, you've attempted this in the wrong way, look, this is the right way and facilitate that right way to happen. So for things, for example, inside our company, we have basically controls where you can't send data to certain places. If our employees butt up against that, they nudge against that guardrail. It's like, hey, look, we've stopped you. We've protected you from yourself because you probably, you know, this isn't the right way to do things. This is the correct way to do it. Click here to go down the path to do it the correct way. So in the informational, there's actually the option to do things the right way. And I think by as much as possible, promoting controls that are guardrails and not roadblocks is the way to improve security, certainly the way to improve communication, as Nadia says, between the business and security. And then you've got cyber education sorted in a lot of ways as well, because you're constantly updating people on the evolving threats and risks and consequences of their actions. And me and security and learning, you know, what the business actually does and the challenges they're facing. You know, it's a win-win for me.
0: Nadia, you've been nodding, nodding a lot while Chris has been uh, talking there. Um, I'm so glad she has. <laughs> is this uh, your experience as well? Has there, has there been any pushback in your organization from, from employees? And if there has been, how have you managed that?
1: Yeah, so I, I couldn't agree more, right? I mean, the CIA triad of information security is, you know, keep availability. So you don't want to take availability from the things people need. But take us as an example in security, all of us that know what not to do. We don't prevent ourselves from not doing it. I have social media pages. I have LinkedIn. I have other stuff. But we know the consequences of something. So rather, tell someone the consequences. Tell them why not to do it and do it better. And they won't be as brash when they're doing something. So there's always that, you know, rather informed than not. And and like Chris is saying, they're just going to find a way around you. Gen Millennials, Gen Y, Gen Z, they're way smarter than us. They're not even going to need IT in 10, 15 years' time. So we need to stop thinking that we can prevent them from doing something. We're just making them look for alternatives, right? And that, I don't believe that's conducive to your environment. I'm very much a person who is like, come and talk to me. If you need a shoulder to cry on, I'm here. You know, (laughs) whether it's your personal problems. So people phone me for when their kids, they don't know what to do with regards to security. They found them on YouTube and doing things they shouldn't. When it comes to they own private security at home, their phones, whatever they lost they got um you know their cards uh, uh replicated or duplicated, whatever the case may be, and then there's of course the office security. I, I always tend to go to people and say, hey, you know, this is how you can better secure yourself. This is how you can, better you can secure your family. Um, tell them about these things. And then I go into the corporate part of it. So it's always I'll reel you in and I kind of, hey, you know, let's learn a little together. And then I say, okay, but now this is how we can protect the, corporate, uh, the organization. And that seems to have worked. And, yes, there will always be your one or two. But I think those guys you can manage. Those guys are the ones that you rather have 98% on your side or 99 and deal with the exception. Do you know what I mean? Then you have everybody yes. that is upset with you because you've now implemented Big Brother uh, into your organization and you're literally stopping and blocking and you know every single thing that they're trying to do and every avenue that they're trying to go down. At the end of the day, people just want to work. They just want to get their thing done and they want to do it the best way possible. And sometimes that's not the most secure way. So like Chris said, give them an alternative and make sure that you're hand-holding and you work together and everybody is happy. I promise you, I've gone from an organization that knew very little about the consequences of, of security risk and threat management and to a now much better organization. And now I, I feel like I've got a team of 300 strong because every single person will notify me when something goes wrong before I sometimes I even notice it. So that's what I think. Okay. So I was
0: going to ask, Yeah. I was, I was going to ask if you've seen significant behavioral changes amongst yeah. employees of your organization, but I think you've answered that question yeah. you have indeed.
1: Definitely. Definitely. Good. And it's been such a, it's such a, it's been such a beautiful experience because I think for me, I don't want to leave people uneducated. I don't want to leave people thinking I'm the person responsible for security because I'm not. I'm just there to make sure that the guardrails are there, right, and that we protect it. But security is everybody's responsibility, down from the from CEO right down to the janitor and to the person who's uh, allowing people to walk into the door. Everybody's responsible.
0: Good. I think that's a good uh, place to uh, to wrap it up. Um, Nadia, if uh, anyone wants to learn more about LRMG, your website is lrmg.co.za, is that right? Yes, thanks, thank you. And, uh, Fallon, next next nextdlp.com is the best address to visit yes. Next DLP, is it? Good. Um, before we go, though, Nadia, I did mention at the beginning that you have your own podcast. Uh, tell us a little bit about it. It's called Journeys to Inspire. What is the focus and uh, where can
1: people subscribe? Thank you so much, Duncan. Um Journeys to Inspire is a personal baby of mine. Um I've been in the tech industry when it was, you know, it's still pretty much male dominated. Uh but I've been in the tech industry when really? when it was yeah, when it was hard and it, the journey was difficult and to break the ceilings was mm-hmm. was is still tough. It's still tough. But Journeys to Inspire was built on that we are geeks, and we weren't popular, and we were those kids that were bullied and picked on. And whether you're a guy or girl, you know, it was tough. It was really tough. Um, but, I, but Journey to Inspire is there to to bring more kids into the STEM industry, especially cyber. Um, and we want to grow the industry. And we want we're saying, hey, you know, what? everywhere in the world, we're looking for kids like us. We're looking for those awkward ones. And look at Chris and I, 20 years later, we're cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> we pretty much think we are. <laughs> um, but you know, there's a, there's a spot and there's a, there's a place for you. And, uh, and, we, and we're especially looking at the neurodiverse kids, the kids who have the ADHD and the PTSD and all of the, and the autism and all of that, because they are extremely excellent in the STEM industry. So that's what Journeys to Inspire is about. And Journeys is is about a whole lot of leaders inside who pick their hands up and said, hey, you guys can lean on us. We will handhold you through this. If you want to study it, um, I mentor a couple of people inside, um, uh, you know, that aren't even in cyber as yet and wanting to get into cyber. And it's been such a fulfilling journey. And I just, that's how Journeys to Inspire has grown. Uh, We can be found on LinkedIn so far. Um, So you just look up Journeys to Inspire on LinkedIn. Uh, the the podcasts are all available there as well as YouTube um, we're sort of on TikTok uh, not fully but we're trying to get there uh, we're trying to get in with the cool kids uh, but also I think um, if you're looking for someone to come and chat to your schools to your kids to whoever um, we are actively trying to do that now and, and we've started on that journey as well so it's been brilliant and I hope to see more of it going forward
0: Fantastic. Nadia Viran Patel works for LRMG and Fallenstein and Chris Dembig white are with Next DLP. Thank you all for a great discussion and uh, Thank thanks you for your so time much. today.
1: Thanks, Dengue. Thank, Thank,
3: Thank you, everyone.